Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we begin an epic journey through the book of Romans. Romans is arguably the most influential letter ever written. In the history of Christianity, its significance towers above anything else because of all of the doctrines that pour out of it. Justification, sanctification, election, perseverance of the saints, the Trinity, Christian liberties, and the list goes on and on. A text from Romans provoked the conversion in the fourth century of Augustine of Hippo when he picked up a Bible and read from the 13th chapter a verse that said, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. If you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, you know why that verse was so powerful. He had grown up in a Christian home but had strayed from his faith and had become a playboy. A monk named Martin Luther had his entire theology rearranged after reading the book of Romans. And an Anglican priest named John Wesley was converted to Christ after reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans, and Wesley later became the founder of Methodism. The scope of what is written in its pages is nothing less than breathtaking. It is Paul's most systematic work and according to N.T. Wright, is philosophically on par with anything ever written by Plato or Aristotle. The Protestant Reformation grew in large part, in large part out of its disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church over how to interpret the book of Romans. Now, Paul wrote the letter sometime between 55 and 58 A.D., but had never visited Rome. He was not the church in Rome's founder, but he was like a spiritual father to many of its members, possibly 10%. The, many of the Romans knew him by reputation, and in the end of the book of Romans in chapter 16, he lists about 30 of those people that he knew very closely, 30 out of about possibly 300 the reason for writing Romans was the friction between Jewish and Gentile believers that occurred 
Prior to Paul's writing, in the year 49, the emperor Claudius expelled the Jews because of quarreling among themselves about someone named Crestus. Now, we are not positive, but it is likely that it was a reference to Christ. The Jews, the ones that believed in Jesus and the ones that did not believe in Jesus, started quarreling. And in Acts 18 and 2, there's this passage, Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. In their absence, in the absence for, of the Jews in Rome, the Gentile Christians grew to make up the bulk of the Roman church. And when the Jews returned five years later after the death of Claudius, the church was poised for a multicultural conflict. The Jews had all this history to their faith and the Gentiles had all this pagan history behind them and that caused conflicts. And Romans, the book of Romans, speaks into that. Now, it doesn't only address that, The foundation is Paul writing to unify these divided Christians, these Jewish believers and these Gentile believers, because as they bring to the table their own sort of cultural sensibilities, the way that they even think about God is different. It would be the equivalent of a really important, well-recognized, famous theologian today writing a book to unify black and white Christians and explain why, though they worship the same Lord, their worship looks so different at times, and they at times think very differently about God. So let's read the first seven verses of Romans chapter one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, now we pray that you would transform us in your spirit through the preaching of the word here today in Romans and even going forward. Lord, till the soil of our hearts that we might receive the seed that you would plant in us and let the preached word today meet us at our most needed point, Lord God, in our lives today. Let, we be, let us be transformed by it and changed into the people you want us to be, to be freed to serve the Lord the living Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen. Well, the first thing I want us to notice in this lengthy introduction that Paul gives, which is a lot lengthier than most of his introductions, because again, the Romans did not know him personally, and so Paul is telling us a little bit 
about himself in this introduction, primarily how he views himself. He begins the letter with an introduction describing himself as a servant, Paul. A servant, doulos, the Greek word, of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. In just one sentence, he encapsulates his self-perception to his Roman readers, calling himself a servant, essentially a slave. And it's very significant because Paul could have said anything about himself. He could have said, I, Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He could have said, a Benjamite, circumcised on the eighth day. He could have said, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a warrior for truth, poet, philosopher. But instead, he chooses the word servant. As we just learned going through the book of Philemon, the word doulos is sometimes translated as servant, but it means slave. Now for us, we've sort of whitewashed the word to just mean we worship Jesus. We're servants of the Lord. But in the ancient world, to say someone was a servant was to say they were a slave. There may have been a gradation of their servanthood, but it was not a highly esteemed word. For Greek and Romans, this is an abject and servile word filled with contempt and disdain. But the Jews viewed it with great honor when attached to God. They would have thought of David as the servant of the Lord. Israel as Yahweh's servant, or when God referred to Moses, my servant. The key is that Paul's Self-image is servanthood. At the root of his very being, this incredibly well-educated and well-taught man with an amazing sense of calling and influence views himself primarily as Christ's slave. One thing we'll see as we move to the book of Romans is how the grace of God crucifies pride and boasting. Paul could have boasted in his accomplishments, but instead, he sees himself as a servant. Whatever your worldly accomplishments are, your education, maybe you're an accountant, a school teacher, a pastor, a CEO, if we're to be productive for God, we must be servants. Mark 10, 45 says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The next facet of Paul's self-perception is his apostleship. Apostle means messenger or envoy. Paul is God's envoy commissioned to share the message of God's good news about his son. And the reason why this is important is because Paul was not self-appointed, and so as he introduces this really big letter, this really important letter to the Christians in Rome, the first thing he wants to establish is why they should listen to him. And the reason why they should listen to what he's about to say in the next 16 chapters is that 
His commission and calling is not self-appointed. It comes from God himself. When people refused to hear his message, when things weren't going well, he could always recall that he was called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. He knew that his life's work was not in vain because the calling he had received was real. Now maybe you're wondering if your life is in vain. If what you're doing makes a difference. If what you do matters in your day-to-day living. Maybe you don't have a clear perception of who you are. When asked, you might say, well, I'm a daughter or a brother or a husband or a friend or a father or an engineer or a school teacher or an accountant. But that really doesn't describe who you are as a person. My mother has been wrestling with her own self-perception since my father died because for so long, the phrase, the word wife characterized how she understood herself, and now she's not a wife. But I wonder if, like Paul, we can find our self-perception in the simple but powerful truth that we're called and set apart to be servants of God. And the baggage with that label means that God, in a very real sense, owns us. He owns our lives, he owns our callings, and even though we all do different things and have different backgrounds, what unites us is this fact about who we are, that God owns us and stakes a claim over us. Part of the language of being bought with a price, most of us associate that with we've been freed from the the slavery marketplace. A lot of that imagery conjures up being freed from bondage, that one has purchased our freedom. What we often don't think about is the one that has purchased us has purchased us for himself. He has not just freed us to do anything, but to live for him. And so this imagery of servanthood is really powerful for Paul, and it's going to appear over and over and over again. Paul was sustained by his calling as an apostle to preach the good news, and he knew who he was. He was a doulos. He was a slave for Christ. The second thing that Paul communicates in this introduction is his view of preaching. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand, through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. You know, the gospel wasn't a theological novelty, although for a lot of people in the first century, they felt like it was. Some newfangled idea about God and some person who some of these people did not even know. Not everybody had met Jesus. Especially when Paul writes this book some 30 years after the life of Christ, he's talking about someone that they've never encountered or never met. But in Paul's mind, the gospel was in the Old Testament scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul announces, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And for Paul, that means the Old Testament, the only Bible that existed at the time, which was the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. 
And verse 3 stresses this point that Jesus was the son of David. And in verse 4 stresses that he was the son of God. The son of David, the son of God. Now one of the reasons why all of this is really, really, really important is because in the first century when Paul writes, the idea of a son of God is already sort of a phrase pregnant with meaning for people living in the Roman Empire. And maybe you can guess what it usually refers to, it usually refers to the emperor. The emperor serves and has the right to rule because he is a son of God, maybe Apollos, maybe Zeus. And so for Paul to sort of reappropriate this language of son of God to Jesus, this prophet of Nazareth, this backwater, for all intents and purposes, a Galilean peasant, is radical. I mean, it's controversial. It's shocking for him to call Jesus the Son of God. And as we move through this chapter, when Paul talks about what he is and isn't ashamed of, a lot of it is the knowledge that a lot of what he's saying sounds shameful. It sounds embarrassing. And it does not always land on the ears the right way, especially to people who have entirely different definitions of a lot of these phrases. So the gospel wasn't a novelty, it was found in the Old Testament. Jesus is not a son of God because of his aristocratic lineage like the Caesars, but God himself has sanctioned his rule through his resurrection from the dead. His lineage is he's a descendant of David, but more than that, he's a son of God And what proves it is his resurrection from the dead. And this is remarkable. It's really remarkable coming from Paul who had previously thought that Jesus was a messianic pretender. Paul persecuted the Christians because he thought they were heretics because it was a movement that first emerged among Jews, his countrymen. And he was careful to eradicate this dangerous heresy because in Paul's mind, Jesus was just a pretender. And now he's writing a theological treatise to unite Christians and proclaim that this Jesus, who he once thought was a pretender, is the Son of God. The third thing we see is Paul's view of his commission. How does Paul view his commission? Well, largely as a matter of grace. In verse five, he says, through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So we've seen Paul's view of himself Paul's view of preaching, and now his view of his commission, which is by grace. Grace is the epicenter of Paul's calling. It's the epicenter of Paul's theology. It's by grace that Paul is who he is. And the Reformation, by the way, was no fluke, because in the years from the early church to the medieval church, this message of grace had been muffled. The idea of what it meant to serve God and be a Christian had gotten hijacked by all sorts of other weird things 
in this interim period during the medieval age. And I'm not saying nothing good came from that period of time. There are a lot of good things that came out of the medieval church, but what was muffled and stifled and buried was the theology of grace. And this is why in the early 16th century, the book of Romans is at the center of the controversy of the medieval church and the reformers and what they're arguing about because this idea of grace, if it is not functioning in your theology, it's very easy for your own idea of yourself and God to be led astray very easily. And many people have walked away from the faith because they have not sort of gotten a hold of the theology of grace. That we are who we are, not because of how good we are, not because of how often we're in church, although I wish that kind of were part of the package. (laughs) But by grace. And this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 10. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary... I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God working within me. There's some tension that's rife in that statement because the idea of grace is that we're liberated from having to work for our salvation, but in Paul's mind, the grace of God, knowing that his salvation is locked secure in God's love for him, frees him to work even harder. Because whatever failures or bumps in the road he's going to encounter along the way don't affect God's love for him. Therefore, he can work with all his might. He's freed to work for God. He's freed to labor for God. He's free to move in his calling with absolute, total abandon for God knowing that his salvation and God's love for him is secure. It is in stone. Because it's really got nothing to do with him. It's got everything to do with the love of God. The initiating love of God. By grace, in Paul's mind, God saved Israel from the Egyptians and it is now by grace that his ministry is reaching the Gentiles. It is all by grace. Again, the language of grace will dominate Romans. We'll come to see. Karl Barth said, And we don't agree with Bart on everything, but he said, only when grace is recognized to be incomprehensible is it grace. I'd like to think that what energized and motivated Paul for his entire life until the day he died was this unfathomable reality. How could God save someone like me? Sort of the incomprehensibility of grace. And if you just stop for a moment and think about things that you've done ways you've fought, shameful behaviors in your past, and really are honest with yourself, you have to recognize and confess that God's grace towards you is incomprehensible. Like, why? Why would God save you? Why should God love you? If God's standard is perfect, absolute perfect moral righteousness... Well, as Paul says later on in Romans in Romans chapter 3, we all fall short of the glory of God. And so for Paul, grace was something that kept him in constant wonder like a child beholding the Grand Canyon for the first time. 
For Paul, he is in absolute awe and wonder of the grace of God, and he never gets over it. Now, I dare say that that is the case for many of us. For many of us, we might have had an encounter with the grace of God. Maybe when we concentrate really hard, we get excited about it. But for a lot of us, it's sort of lost its, you know, pizzazz. We're just not excited about it, maybe like we used to be. And this, what's helpful for us is to recall sort of either when we became Christians, our conversion, or recall just what it means that God has saved us from our sins and, and now adopts us as his own children. This is a theme also that comes up in the book of Romans, adoption, that God, through Christ, adopted us into his family and all of the rights and privileges of his son Jesus are ours. That's hard to imagine. That's hard to come to grips with. Paul can never get over it. Everything in life was a matter of grace. Do you feel that way? Or do you feel that if life works or doesn't work out for you, it's all riding on you? This is a weird place to be when we know that like decisions have consequences and we should be wise. You know, coming out of the book of Proverbs in the early fall, you know, Proverbs sort of counseled us that we should be discerning and wise because if you make foolish decisions, you suffer the consequences. And yet, the theology of grace militates against absolutizing that point of view because God is always behind the scenes as our Heavenly Father working for our good. God is always working for our good. In fact, that comes up later on in the book of Romans too, that all things work for our good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Finally, Paul ends his introduction in verses six and seven by giving his view of the believers in Rome. He's talked about his view of himself, sort of laid out the case about why they should listen to him and what he's about to say. And then he talks about how he views them. In verses six and seven, and what's, what's helpful for this for us is how we should view ourselves. Look at what he says, verses six and seven. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. In other words, God didn't just call me. I'm not the only one who's the recipient of God's amazing, incomprehensible grace. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, the Greek word hagios, holy ones. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we spend so much time trying to be good Christians and figure out whether we're really loving God that we don't stop to rest in the idea that we're loved by God, a love that precedes our love for him. We're loved by God, and that's what Paul wants these Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome to know, first and foremost, right out of the gate, 
that they are called and loved by God. How should we view ourselves? We all know we have shortcomings and mistakes. You've sinned this week. You may have sinned this morning. I know every Sunday morning, because I'm frustrated, like, we're going to be late. Come on, we've got to get there. I'm, you know, I, I have to repent every Sunday, but right before church. But how should we view ourselves? As loved by our Heavenly Father. And this is the one thing I really believe what it means to trust in Christ for salvation. That you really embrace this idea as, of God as a loving Heavenly Father. Because in, unless and until the day you are really able to accept that God loves you as a Father, you can never really have joy in your faith. You can never really be a joyful Christian until you believe that God absolutely loves you as a father. And when we come before God, he sees us as his children. Just like you parents in here, you see your kids, you know they're not perfect. Sometimes they do things that frustrate you, but you don't, you don't reject them. You love them because they're your children. And until you come to rest in that knowledge and let it guide your faith you may not ever really have joy as a believer. But that's what Paul wants the Roman Christians to have, is the confidence and the sense that they are loved by God, that's how he views them, that's how God views them, and that's how they should view themselves. And I just want to say this morning that that's how you should view yourself. If the book of Romans is about anything, it is about God's love for his people, Jew and Gentile, Greek and Roman Every group, God is no respecter of persons coming to grips with the knowledge that God loves us. In William Peter Blatty's novel, The Exorcist, the older priest, Father Lancaster Marin, he says, at the end of the day, all unbelief may be simply the inability to believe that God actually loves us. And if you think about that for a moment, that's profound. That unbelief may not stem simply from a lack of desire to want to worship God, but from the incomprehensibility that God could actually love us. Paul doesn't mention here the believer's love for God, but something more important, God's love for the believer. You know, we don't have a relationship with a distant deity, but someone who is close to us who loves us intimately, who knows all the worst things about us and still loves us. And for those of you who have been, that have been married a really, really long time, you, you think your spouse knows a lot about you, and they probably do. But there are things you know about yourself that even they don't know. But God knows and still loves you and still loves us. This love is the the groundwork, the foundation of the unity of the church. For Paul here in Romans, the unity of Jew and Gentile. For us here living in America, the unity between black and white and Hispanic and Asian. It is the unity for us in the church, the love that God has for us as no respecter of persons. This morning, whatever dissatisfaction you may feel with your life, you have been called, you've been called and set apart and commissioned and most of all loved by God. Rest in that this morning. 
Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord God, as we enter this breathtaking epistle by the brilliant Apostle Paul. Help us to enter into his thought. Help us, O oh God, to walk away with real application for our lives. Not just ivory tower theological concepts, but Lord, livable and workable ideas from Scripture that help us to rest in your calling and love for us as your people. Help us to see our brother and sister differently, knowing that we've been called together, united as one people, as servants of Christ, to live and work and be with all the power that you have for us, O oh God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.